Hi all, welcome back to Down to Brown. Today I have such a great topic lined up that I feel so personally passionate about, but I first wanted to acknowledge you all. How are you? Especially if you're South Asian, I think there's a lot happening right now. Um, In India, the COVID cases, as we know, and situation is drastic, dire, and devastating. It has been, I've just been sitting with my own thoughts around this, and it's been such a strange mix of feeling happier and guilty and hopeful and yet not. And what I mean by that is because in the U.S., things are maybe looking, quote, a little better. People, more and more people are getting vaccinated. Things are opening up. I'm in California, and just today, uh, yesterday, uh, our governor mentioned that we could not wear masks um, if we're vaccinated. So on one hand, there's this normalcy that seems to be in sight. On the other hand, um, we know in India, it is far from that. And it seems like it's almost a repeat of what we experienced in 2020 with COVID in the U.S. So quickly, we've forgotten, right? And I don't blame us. People want to move on to positive if they can. Um, No one wants to sit in the negativity if they can avoid it. But it does feel a little bit like my South Asian friends and I are being re-traumatized in a way where, you know, you have this one life here in the U.S., but you know your thoughts and heart is also with your family, friends, and just generally the care you have for your identity back home. Um, it my Luckily, my mother came actually like this was planned before, but I was just feeling really down this year. And I asked my mom like if she got vaccinated, if she'd come and We booked a flight and she arrived actually the day the ban happened um, last week, April uh, midweek. So it was kind of a great timing, but now I can't help but feel like on one hand, my mom is here. I feel so glad that she's here, safe, tested negative, you know, um, but my dad is still there. um, And, you know, I'm not alone with this. Like a lot of our communities that we know in India are really impacted. The thing I just want to say is if you're South Asian, um, of course, take care. I, you know, sending so much love and I'm all your family and friends are, you know, just well intentionally in our thoughts. But also, if you're not South Asian, please check on your South Asian friends. This is really serious. This is really difficult. And if in any way you can um, have the capacity to donate, that is super helpful. Um, there's so many resources, but I will say shout out to Diaspora Co. Um, you can follow them on Instagram and they've been so beautifully vocal about the fact that we need to help uh, this situation through whatever we can give, whether it's a signature for petitions, whether uh, for international aid, whether it is just helping reach your favorite influencer, um, whether it is to donate if you have the means. But basically, we benefit a lot from the South Asian South, well, South Asian culture, guys. Um, but we're not able to sometimes give back when it is. And I've actually been personally pretty surprised by the amount of friends of mine who have not reached out or said anything to acknowledge what's going on. And it feels like it only mattered when it was going through happening in the U.S. But um, it's a really sad way to not feel seen when you're friends who don't identify as South Asian don't even ask how you're doing. That's the least you can do. So um, that being said, you know, not to start with a negative tone, but this is the reality of what a lot of us are dealing with. And I just could not not acknowledge what's happening. Um, I just my heart is so open to everyone who's experiencing any kind of hardship and stress. And 
mental health balance as we're dealing with this. So with that, um, let's go ahead and um, jump into our episode today, which hopefully will be a good break into thinking about something else. Today, we're talking about imposter syndrome, which I think a lot of us can say, uh, yeah, I know what that's like. Um, And, you know, while I'd rather bond over movies or music or our love for humanity, um, it is also interesting to bond with so many women, especially about this concept. I actually recently learned um, there is a woman named Arthi Rabakrisen, and she is the founder of Prerna Advisory. She was featured in Forbes for her work on imposter syndrome, and she actually talks about how she also refers to it and prefers imposter feeling because the syndrome defines this type of permanent state. But imposter feeling is more accurate because it can be fleeting and more situational. Um, And so I like both of these, depending on where you, I think, connect with um, those terms. But essentially what this is, is a a psychological pattern where you doubt your skill, talents, or accomplishments because you have this fear of being exposed as a fraud. And even though you have things to show, external, very tangible things like evidence, and um, you still feel like you would attribute success to luck or maybe that you've like tricked everyone um, and people just think that you're more intelligent than you are. This affects women way more, although it affects men and women. Um, There's evidence and research to show that women are disproportionately impacted by this, especially if there's intersectionality going on. Um, This is more prominent in ethnic women and minority women, but also if you come from a lower or middle class. Um, So there's it's more complex than we think it is. And the reason why I was so intrigued by this topic is because a I've experienced it myself um, and talk about this constantly. This is something that I really wish we could have just like outgrown during our puberty phase, like acne, but um, alas, it follows. Um, But in Down to Brown, we talk about how we free ourselves from these stigmas, uh, assimilation pressure, and basically move on and become our most free, authentic, self-realized selves. Um, And imposter syndrome or feeling is just such a lovely way, and I mean that so sarcastically, to become stuck. And it's like the gum that sticks to our shoe and just prevents us from being able to move forward to become our best selves. That is why I wanted to talk about it. The other thing that I thought was incredibly interesting was that usually we talk about it as it pertains to life achievements or career, but it actually extends beyond that. Imposter syndrome can affect you in a new environment, um, in an academic setting, in the workplace, of course, um, and then also social interactions and relationships, platonic or romantic. So I would love to pause there and say, like, take a second to see how imposter syndrome has also impacted you socially or with your relationships, because that is something that kind of blew my mind where I was like, damn, this thing can it's pervasive. It is everywhere. Um, And so this lice of a syndrome or feeling um, can really affect us and even not just as plebeians, but celebrities like Riz Ahmed, Tom Hanks, Michelle Obama, Sonia Sotomayor, Emma Watson, you would think they have their shit together. But again, it it is there. 
I wanted to talk today to someone who has not only experienced this, but has done a really great job of continuing to push the envelope in terms of what she wants to achieve and the impact she wants to have in her life with her purpose, but also has had some productive conversations with herself about imposter syndrome and how to basically address it and move past it. Again, I don't imagine that this is something if I had to hypothesize that you can heal from like a cold, but I think it's something that will keep coming up, but we can do our best job at being like, not playa, not today. So today I talked to Dr. Najwa Javed, who is a freaking badass. She is not only a doctor who has her own medical practice, but she's also a fashionista and entrepreneur who has her own fantastic company called MR that sells sexy ass shoes. So check it out on Instagram. Um, but she's also all the social things that we want to be or can be or um, identify with. So she is a uh, daughter. She is a mother. She is a um, wife and she's a friend, etc. So she is all the things and has some really great tidbits about this. Um, quick reminder before we get started, make sure to follow Down to Brown on Instagram to keep posted. And I got lots more information on Najwa um, that you can learn more about because she's just such an interesting woman. Um, that being said, let's get to it. Welcome to Down to Brown, Dr. Najwa Javed. How are you? I am doing well this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Of course, and I'm so happy to have you. It was such a great chance of fate being able to reach out to a childhood friend of mine that I went to middle school who I believe is your relative as well, your in-law. Yeah, she's my sister-in-law, so she connected us. I'm really glad that she did. I know, and I appreciate this network. You get to just meet more and more (laughs) badass brown women this way. So again, thank you so much for being on the show. an initial chat and I was so blown away by all the thoughts that you had. Clearly, you have your fair share of diverse experiences to pull from. Um, And I want to start with, you know, just kind of going back to the conversation of Down to Brown and, you know, how we are playing between these tensions between American assimilation and then South Asian stigma and pressures and norms that we balance. So, you know, where in the South Asian experience do you identify with Nashua? You know, when I read this question, I was thinking that this is a great question. The first thing that came to my mind, which probably comes to the mind of most every um, brown girl, right? It's uh, uh, the ABCD syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. So like we all have heard that term. It is just synonymous with, um, you know, girls of color growing up here, especially from the um, Asian, you know, South Asian, uh, East Asian people. So like one of the things is that, you know, being American-born confused Daisy was just something that I was just constantly, you know, told over and over again where I felt like I, it became a part of my identity for a big part. And I never understood why I was confused because I didn't think I was. I thought <laughs> I was, you know, doing pretty so well <laughs> with everything that our parents wanted, right? So, like, our parents had some expectations. And then, obviously, we were trying to assimilate to the, uh, what you, I guess you could call American culture. And, you know, for most part, I felt like we were doing really great. I mean, we can all attest to the fact that, you know, it was hard for us to maybe go um, have sleepovers or, you know, have um, boys that were uh, guy friends over to our houses or you know go to prom that easily these were all things that we had probably faced a little bit of um, pushback from our parents but overall you know we I think we did a pretty good job about balancing it 
But that's the one that I would um, say that, you know, when I was growing up, I really connected to that. I was like, maybe I am confused. And that led to a whole series of other issues that come with being confused. But as I got older, I realized that, you know, no, no, not really. I'm not confused at all. I'm making the best of both worlds. And that was what really solidified uh, my uh, self-confidence, my self-esteem and the person that I've become today. Absolutely. And I love how you phrased that because you're totally right. And it reminds me of how, you know, more and more we learn about mental health, for example, how they say when you feel something, you were not identified as the feeling, you can feel it. So you can be, of course, it was confusing at times to resolve, you know, these both identities, but you are not a confused person just for making sense of it, right? Exactly. So when you internalize that as your whole identity, that's pretty damaging and not really helpful for self-esteem. So I love that you were like, mom, I don't put the C in my grades or my ABCD acronym, you know? <laughs> so Exactly. Exactly. I totally agree with that. And I think that that's one of, as now as a mother, like that's been one of my biggest things, right? Like I tell my children, like their sense of identity has to be super, super strong. However, they identify themselves, whatever they feel, that is who they are. And I don't label them. And I think that that's something that we do do. And I think that we've learned a lot now um, in this generation about how those labels affected us. And now we're changing, right? We're changing those. Absolutely. It, It does require a bit of questioning everything to be able to now like level set. Where are we now? Yeah. So I know that one of the things that we both got really excited about when we first chatted was, and almost naturally, we both kind of clicked on this topic of imposter syndrome, which is so huge. In fact, um, one of our Wise Woman Wednesdays that we do for Down to Brown every week on Wednesday, we have a very wise brown woman share just a tip or something that they've observed from their field. And um, one of them is a life coach, Karishma Shah, and she had shared how a lot of the women that come to her suffer from imposter syndrome, um, and especially the South Asian female community. And so um, I wanted this is such an important thing to talk about, especially as we're trying to navigate our futures and build that self-esteem of who we are in our contributions in the world. So I'd love to ask you, how would you define imposter syndrome? So, you know, yeah, this when we were talking um, together the other day, this was just such a um touch point right like for both of us and it just triggered something and I think that you know what happens is people describe imposter syndrome in multiple ways but I feel like the one definition that really 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 resonates with me is this definition I guess a loose definition of doubting your abilities or feeling like a fraud right like it it just it feels like you're you're doubting yourself constantly. And one of the things that I have felt and what I've learned over the years is that it this, this actually disproportionately affects high achieving people. Mm-hmm. And they find it really difficult to accept their accomplishments. They really do. Like, you know, they're like, I've heard multiple podcasts by multiple women, um, you know, who are in like Michelle Obama, you know, anybody in like um, uh, Oprah Winfrey, you know, Maya Angelou. And they, they will talk about this, Emma Watson, like, they always felt like a fraud or like they would doubt their abilities. And these are all high achieving people Mm -hmm. and they have accomplishments and they feel like they don't deserve um, the recognition that they're getting because they're frauds. And for me, myself personally, um, 
you know, I had to really kind of, because uh, obviously I'm a physician, I love to research, I really have to get down to the nitty gritty of like, okay, well, what is happening? Is this like a chemical imbalance? Like, is this a cultural yeah. thing? Is this something that like it's nature versus nurture? Oh, like, so you why do the science of things? Yeah, I mean, I was like, I have to figure out like, what what is the problem, right? Like, why are women and uh, women, you know, there was a study done in the Journal of um, Medicine. And, and it said that women, you know, um, have like 82% um, rates of feeling like they have an imposter syndrome. And I just mm. got blown away. And I was just like, that's insane. Like, that's a really, really high number. That's like eight and 10 people that's are huge. like, oh, I'm not, you know, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm doubting my ability constantly. And I, and I started to think like, how does that affect them in their ability to take risks, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, when you doubt yourself or doubt your ability, or you don't think you're good enough, how do you overcome those to become successful? You know, one of the studies also said that, you know, men, they they will ask for more, right? If you're like, a, uh, if you're a startup company and they go in to talk to a VC, they will generally just be able to walk in and be like, yeah, I want like $500,000, right? And like a woman of the same caliber of the same startup with the same type of expertise and the knowledge and the um a brand will go in and be like, oh, I'll just ask for like a hundred thousand dollars. Like mm-hmm. there's this huge dichotomy. And it really started to feel like this was something that women maybe inherently um have learned over years and years and years of being suppressed, you know, and suppressing how smart they are, suppressing how much they know, and not feeling like they actually deserve any of um the things that they actually are worthy of, right? Absolutely. I love all those examples that you shared. It's so helpful because that's really, you know, you can't lie about data. And when women experience this, it's very much you're not alone. And in fact, it's really unfortunate how many other women deal with this. And what you mentioned also is not exclusive to South Asian women. You know, it's it's not a, it's something that all, all women deal with. And I talk about this with South Asian friends, non-South Asian friends. Um, I also feel like sometimes it affects how you interact in relationships as well. Like if you start to feel like, you know, with the concept of imposter syndrome, which you so beautifully explained, there's this underlying feeling of I don't deserve what I've achieved. You know, that it's happening because of some other wild reason, you know, out there. Um, And even when you have evidence to show like the data shows that you've done this, this, that you still feel like I don't deserve it. So I'm just going to sit in this weird, awkward space. Um, And I feel like that's where I also started to notice like imposter syndrome was affecting me in my 20s, especially in my career, in my love life um, with my friends, because I sort of felt like things were just happening to me as a fluke and not because I deserved the love, not because I deserved that friendship, not because I deserved that promotion or new role, if that makes sense. So it can really fuck with you, to be honest, in the end of the day, it's just like a whole situation with your brain where it can make it into scrambled eggs. So, um, you know, bringing it back to South Asians, like you're right, like, I think like some of it has to do with also the messages we hear growing up. So in your opinion, what are some of those messages that you heard maybe? And I imagine that you had to you didn't just Correct me if I'm wrong, if you're just this miracle of a baby, but you were born and just didn't have it. Um, I, I, I imagine <laughs> that you went, you identified it, worked through it and were able to heal from it. So what was that journey like for you? Yeah. So, you know, uh, my journey is really interesting. And I actually sometimes I have to sit down and I have to reflect on these things um, and what I call biofeedback for myself. And I do that a lot. That's just something that I've done um, since 
you know, my mid to late 20s. And it's really helped me to really reflect on my life and how it's changed. So um, I'm the eldest of uh, immigrant parents who came to the United States with nothing, literally nothing. And um, so they moved from Pakistan. Mm -hmm. So they moved from Pakistan. And my mom and dad, you know, my mom had grown up really wealthy, um, daughter of landowners, you know, and all the British schools and things like that. And my dad, he was um, living in Saudi, you know, he was an engineer working, making a lot of money. And then they decided to come to the United States. And after they got married, for obviously, right, the American dream. And when they got here, none of their degrees, none of their experience qualified for anything. Mm. So obviously, like, you know, they're this young married couple, nothing is getting translated. So my parents went back to school. Now, um, they had me, my mom had me when I was ni- when she was 19. And so she was a really young mom. You know, she had just finished um, high school and then she had gotten married and then she moved. So while they were both going to school, like, you know, as the first child of immigrant parents, like, you know, it's something that I just automatically knew that, okay, you know, you can't ask for that toy, you know, wherever you're going to live. If you're going to be at your, you know, relative's house for so long because we're looking for an apartment, like whatever it was, right? Like I was always a very quiet, timid child. If my mom would tell me to sit somewhere, I would just sit there. And, you know, it was just out of respect for them because I knew that they were struggling. But uh, I think that those um, early years of my life, you know, between zero and five, I saw it so much that it just made me a very shy person. I was very quiet. Um, I would never bother anybody. I would never ask for anything. And my mom says this to this day, like, you know, she's like, you were the easiest child. Like, whatever we told you to do, you would do. Like, I was just, I would never go against whatever was told to me. So growing up, like, you know, if they told me to do something, I would just do it. I wouldn't question it. Mm. It was just like a rule book for me. Like, okay, Najwa, like, you can't have a sleepover okay you can't have a sleepover boys can't come to our house even if it's for a school project okay boys cannot come to our school you have to become a doctor okay you'll become a doctor like you know there there wasn't anything that I said no to and it was okay with me because I was content and I was happy but as I started to get a little older, one of the things that happened was that, and the great thing was I loved to be, I wanted to be a physician. I'm very compassionate. And that was just something that spoke to me. But um, everybody would be like, why are you so quiet? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, you know, don't you have anything oh, to gosh. say? Yeah. And my mom, who was very feisty by this time, you know, she was just like, always like, you know, you have to speak up if you need something in your life. Like she just taught me like, nothing comes for free. Like, you deserve mm. to have this, you know, or you need to be able to get this recognition. So come on, like, you know, speak up. And my mom was a really, really big pull. And I guess she didn't realize like how much my earlier years had made me um, you know, such a quiet child. But then when she saw, she started, she started to immediately remedy that. Mm. So she would push me in ways that I couldn't have ever imagined, but those allowed me to, you know, really face like, okay, well, what's wrong? Like, you know, do I not deserve this? Like, is it because like I'm good enough or is it just because like somebody else had the courage to ask for it? So <laughs> when this happened and, you know, like I started to learn, okay, like it's okay to ask. It's okay to, um, you know, if you ask a question, it's not that you're dumb. It's because you maybe you need information that you may not have otherwise had. And, yeah. you know, when I was younger, I would have never asked anybody for any help. And when I realized that asking for help is one of the biggest and greatest ways um, high achieving people make it. That's when it it was just like a game changer for me. From there on, I was like, any question that I could ask to get where I needed to go, it was, you know, totally, everything was there. The sky was the limit. Yeah. And 
I really appreciate how your mom played such a pivotal role in going back and saying, hey, wait a second. I know we talked about this growing up differently, but let's push you as she probably was going through her own journey, I imagine, as she came to the States and started to build her own esteem, right? Like, I think sometimes we forget how much our parents are also going through their own experience simultaneously, sometimes parallel, which can also be kind of messy. Exactly. Um, Yeah, like we're going through something at 20 and our moms might be going through something at 50. Um, So such an interesting experience for us. But I find this even, you know, the asking piece, you're so right. Like the worst that people can say is no. And even then, like it's not, it doesn't make you invalid, incorrect, or less of a person. Um, Rejection is okay. Um, And I find this especially because a lot of my friends ask me for negotiation help because of my experience in HR during the past. And um, half the conversation is about, can I ask for this amount that I really want? And you're, I'm always like, no one's going to be like, well, actually, screw this. I'm going to take the offer away. You're going to ask, they'll say no. Or they'll figure out a different way to make it work. But that's fine. You know, so. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And I think, that, you know, that point that you just said right here is so critical. Well, you know, now I manage a group of like 13 female employees. We're all female run, female owned. And the thing is, is that, you know, one of the things that I tell, like even my new associates or like my uh, residents who are graduating, I'm like, listen, guys, like if you don't ask and you don't tell them what they, you need, it's not going to work. Like you have to be able to communicate. And I think that this is so critical, like communication skills for for me as a child of immigrants was really difficult. And I had to learn like not only to ask, but effectively communicate my ask to somebody. And you know, that's a game changer. You're exactly correct. Like what's the worst that they're going to say is no, or they're going to maybe say like, well, you know, I don't think I can do that right now, but maybe let's put it on the back burner for a little while later. And then we'll revisit it in a month or two. Like nothing bad's going to happen. Like at least you got it out there. It's in the you know universe somewhere and maybe it'll come true now. <laughs> Absolutely. I had the best experience listening to my fiance negotiate for his offer. He's um, he's Russian, but, you know, to physically people think he's a white male. And he asked for this number when he got an offer. And I was like, are you sure? Like, are do you did you do research to back it up? Like, is that OK? And he's yeah. like, yeah, of course I deserve this money. Look at all this. Like, you know, and he like did not bat an eye, went through the conversation, skipped this whole part that I thought was normal where you're like, do I deserve it? How am I going to ask? I'm nervous, you know, like. And so I was like, yes. wow, I should just negotiate like a white man in the future. Thank you for teaching me how it's done. Oh my God, you know, that's exactly like, you know, I was reading a quote the other day. It was like, you know, think like a man and like work like a boss. And I was like, oh my God, like I need to think like a man. Like we really need to quit like this constant, like thinking like a woman, we overthink everything. And you know, we always tell ourselves we don't deserve that. And that is the most incorrect thing. And I've been there, I've done that even now, sometimes I still do it because I have a startup company. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I really have to catch myself and be like, Najwa, like, you know what, you need to quit. Like you deserve this. You put your heart and soul into it and you have the thought leadership to go behind it. So don't let anybody tell you anything else. I like seriously have to be my own cheerleader. And you know what? That's okay. Be your own cheerleader because nobody else is going to. Absolutely. And the thing I'll add to that is it's so important to be your own cheerleader because The catch about imposter syndrome, in my personal opinion, is that even when other people are telling you you're great or you've got this, you're badass, like you're like, no, 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 I don't believe you. Those are all luck, you know, so like the amount and levels of gaslighting that you do to yourself, it has to come from you because still, you know, if your friend says it, your mom says it, I'm like, you have to say that you like 
you're like you just have you're obligated right like as my friend or mom for example so I think that's the problem too and so you can just continue to feed into that cycle you know at that point that you just said right here about luck you know I actually it's really funny I actually don't believe in luck I used to but I don't anymore Mm -hmm. yeah like I don't I and I and I truly believe this it's because I feel like when we attribute things to luck or like some you know thing out of our control if it if we fail at it we're like oh well you know it wasn't in our hands anyways and that to me is like okay that's not gonna work for me like I believe you make your luck you know like you have to open your own doors and and I can tell you this by when I started to go from medicine to entrepreneurship I had no idea I have no MBA you know I I have medicine uh, you know I have a doctorate but I don't have an MBA from Harvard like Stanford I don't but like I was like you know how are these other people doing it and they were always like oh you know like it's because I just hustled and like literally when I hustle I was like if you hustle you will find your luck that door will open up for you if you knock on it hard enough and that's where I like totally changed my mind I was like you know the only thing I always say is like I pray that nobody's hard work ever meets hard luck but you know that door will open eventually if you just keep at it absolutely persistence is key Mm -hmm. absolutely and I feel like so I'm not even going to try to compare us because, you know, you are killing the game on so many different levels that I have not yet to reach. Um, but I will say that one thing that I found is in what you described, it becomes almost like a drug, like the achievement uh, piece of it. So you kind of you achieve, you downplay it because of imposter syndrome, but then you're like, okay, how about on to the next one? And maybe it's external validation that gives you temporary, like, okay, I've done something right here and like something successful. But then again, you, you know, don't believe yourself and you're like, okay, what's the next achievement, the next achievement. Did you find yourself ever experiencing that where you were almost attributed to the like success and the achievement, you know, at being a high achieving woman but then at the same time feeling like you weren't enjoying it. So it just became this addiction and cycle. You know, what you said right here is just so, so critical, right? Like if you get into this uh, rabbit hole of not being fulfilled, it's really bad. Mm. Um, You know, I, I don't personally feel like I've ever been there. Like I don't have like a rush or an addiction of being busy. I, I'm really passionate, right? Like the things that I do, it's because they arise from uh, this deep desire um, of doing something for somebody or bringing to market something that I believe is going to, you know, radically change somebody's life or, you know, finding solutions, which, you know, I become extremely passionate about. But it's never like when I started Emar, like it was never because I wanted to have a startup company. Like I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. My glass was like overflowing. You know, I had two little kids. I had um, successful medical practice. Like that's just not something that was on my radar. But it just when it came about and it just started to the seed was planted in my mind and it started to, you know, actually flourish, I was like, oh, you know, this is great. And I did it because it was passionate. I do know that um, sometimes with uh, some people, it becomes like they just want to they just want to go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I feel like for them, it's more than imposter syndrome at that point. It's just basically that they're not fulfilled. And like, I'm very thankful that that has never been an issue for me. Um, I love my medical practice, but I also love what I'm doing. But I'm doing it out of passion and not out of desperation, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I It's interesting to hear that because I certainly feel like I'm still in that phase where and maybe it is a lack of fulfillment, but I feel like I'm always kind of like, what's the next thing I can accomplish where it's also it leads to a lot of burnout. 
Um, and so it's it's a really good perspective for me to consider too, because I know others who feel the same way where they're like, especially with the pandemic, this feeling of we have to be productive in everything that we do. And so I look at people who can relax and they might be like, wow, you're doing so much, Lahari. And I'm like, actually, I really feel like I'm like a psycho and I need to relax more and I wish I could embrace like peace and quiet like you. I feel like unless I have in my day like 50 things that I've done, it, it's not valid, which it, it does connect with my imposter syndrome a bit, like until I achieve that I'm, you know, um, so that is kind of like something that I toy with. No, I think that, and you know, the thing is, is that when you're, so like if I rewind back, like, you know, about like seven to 10 years, I was probably in the same place that you are, mm-hmm. right? Like to be frankly honest, because, you know, you're like, you're at this weird crux in the road, right? Like you're like, okay, I finished all my education. I finished my schooling. And like, you know, for most people, like we're professional students, right? For a really long time. And you're always doing something. You're always on the go. And then you start a job and it's more like, you know, nine to five. And then you know that you're, uh, you, you have the capability to do so much more. And especially if you're a high achieving, you know, person, you know that, oh, I can do this and I can do this and do this. But what ends up happening is, is that you do get burned out. And so like for me, my, you know, myself personally, like, you know, um, I finished residency. I started a medical practice, um, you know, as an associate, I was, you know, consulting, I was teaching. And then I had two really, really young kids, a two-year-old and a newborn. And uh, for the first five years when I was doing all of this, because, you know, obviously like getting these coveted consulting positions or getting these like um, associate professorship positions, like who am I in the world to say no to them? Right. Like, I mean, everybody wants them. And like, you know, here I am, like the fates have given me this opportunity and I'm not going to say, no to it but then what happened is is that um I burnt out like I super duper burnt out and I was like you know I can't do this and you know my husband was like well who are you doing it for like you know and I was like well I'm doing it because I have to you know I'm building my resume and I'm doing this and that and like you know this is a part of what I've trained for Mm -hmm. and he was like "No, no no but who are you doing it for and when he said it to me the second time, like, it was like a slap in the face, not like an actual slap, but like a slap in the face, because I was like, oh, my God, like, yes, Najwa, you can do everything. But like, the thing is, is that who are you doing it for? Is it giving you fulfillment? Like, I mean, are you happy doing it? And then I really had to think about it, right? And it took me a long time. I'm not saying like this came overnight. Like, this is just took years and years of like biofeedback. To, yeah, like to be like, okay, you know, like, do, do you feel like your achievements are not good enough? Is that why you feel like an imposter and you want to do more and more and more or like do you finally feel like you know I can say no to this because I'm content where I am I'm happy where I am and like maybe there's other things for me in the future that you know I don't need to worry about this so much but I have to tell you it's really really tough for women because you know for us like you know there's this other thing um when we are you know when we're in a professional like a corporation you know men will get those promotions and women you know they usually won't and there's this huge discrepancy between how many men get promoted versus women because one like you know we could be of childbearing years Mm -hmm. you know we could have little children we can't put that time and dedication into it even though we want to and then the time passes by and then like you know the guy who was your colleague is like the director and like you're still like doing what you were doing and like you know it's really hard and so like you're right like you know women feel like we have to do just so much more to keep up with everything that a guy can do and I just don't think that that's fair the system has to change exactly and I think what you mentioned actually reminded me of how when people talk about goal setting for example they say you know instead of trying to do five focus on focus on one or two do them really well 
and you'll achieve what you need to do. And the reason I bring that up is because you mentioned how, you know, with the imposter syndrome connecting back to that, it's a catch. You are worried that you're going to be exposed as a fraud, that it's all because of luck. Someone's going to just shine the, you know, helicopter lights on you and the cops are going to be like, it's your, you know, like you don't belong here. So in order to make up for that, we do all these things. Like we might sign up for that other organization. We might sign up for another job or go for something harder. And instead of just actually taking a second to your point where you realize like, who am I doing this for? And I think that actually probably ends up resulting in more of a mastery of confidence, contribution, impact over what you're doing than signing up for a whole lot of things, not really being clear on what your mission or purpose is, like your personal one, and doing it for the sake of then people, I can continue fooling people that I'm really smart. I, I have my shit together, right? Sure. I, I feel, look, I'm telling you, it's it's a it's a daily learning experience for me still. Absolutely. Like every day, like, you know, I have to tell myself like, okay, Najwa, like you're you're good at this. Like every time I have to pitch in front of somebody, I have to remind myself like, okay, I can do this. I'm, it never changes, but you can get better at it. And I think that the way that you really have to... Um, speak to yourself is to speak to yourself in words of affirmation Mm -hmm. and also like it's okay to be humble but it's also okay to praise yourself like it's not wrong and I think in the um south you know south asian culture like we're told like never praise yourself oh god forbid if you praise yourself like that's like the worst that could happen right like you know you should be humble and like I've learned that you know what no like you know I I need to appreciate myself for the things that I've been able to get done. And, you know, some things like they're just going to have to take a little while. And, you know, you said like making a um, task list. This is the key. I make a task list every morning. It has five things on it. And I just need to be able to have my little book and get those done. And because when I do, one, it makes me like, okay, I have achievable you know, concrete items that I'm going to be working on. And, the you know, I'm going to finish these. And then it makes it more manageable for me. And that makes my whole day much more productive because then I don't feel like mm. I'm a jack of all trades and a master of none, right? Can you limit it to five? I limit it to five. And then some, you know, like if I'm having a huge like PR push that I need to do and I have like 10 things, but I always keep it manageable. Like I don't let it overwhelm me because I learned like I think it was like five or seven years ago. I can't remember exactly. I was on the like brink of like total breakdown and had almost like had a panic attack because I couldn't balance all the things. And, you know, my girlfriend. Oh, no, thank you. Like, but, you know, we never talk about these things. And, you know, people think like women are just like doing everything and they don't have any type of insecurity or problem or, you know, fear or anxiety. Um, But we do. And um, my girlfriend was just like, listen, Najwa, like if you're feeling this bad, like you are the only one who can take control of your life and change it. And when she told when she said this to me, even though I had heard it a thousand times before, for whatever reason, that day, it just clicked. And I was like, you know what? Some days things just click better than others. So just keep telling, you know, yourself and other people what what you think needs to happen. And one day it will click. Absolutely. I really like that tip. That's such a tangible tip that we can do. And I like protecting to the fact that it's a few things, get it done, and there will be a new day, right? So um, I feel like even your own, you know, being 
the piece of words of affirmation, it stood out to me because that's going back to what I mentioned of like the evidence-based approach. That's something that my therapist actually advised me where when I was doubting something of like, I think I was basically like, what if I'm a failure? I was dealing with severe imposter syndrome in like my early 20s. Um, and she was like, well, let's count all the things that you've done. And she's like, data doesn't lie. So she's like, literally, if you're feeling doubtful, list out like I graduated at this or did this. And like, you'll be able to see that like, okay, like that's that's a shit ton. And so like the evidence shows that you're good at this or you've done presentations and not um, looked down and been like, oh, I'm not wearing any clothes. Like evidence shows. Right. So I think that's also a really helpful way to not argue with yourself. I think that, you know, sometimes we and our fear um, our biggest enemies and, um, you know, being able to overcome those. And, you know, I, I think that this point that you made about, you know, your therapist, like helping you overcome these, um, issues, you know, just writing them down and making you face what you have accomplished is so critical because, um, in the Southeast culture, it's like really, really difficult for us to ever talk about getting help about, you know, talking about our mental health or mental, mental well-being. And we really need to address these things because these can cause lifelong issues with, you know, heart disease disease, um, uh, you know, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, you know, fatigue, lethargy, like they can cause so many things. And like, you know, and we don't need to put ourselves in this mold just because our mind is playing these games with us. We can overpower. I mean, the the brain is just such an intricate um, and such a complex organ. And we can really, really change a lot of our biology by just the way we think about things. And so I'm really glad that you mentioned that because, you know, I I would advise people, especially like, you know, um, people of color, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, to seek seek, uh, help if you need it because it's just something that we rarely, rarely see people of color do across the masses. Like, not just like, you know, South um, East Asian, like everybody, you know, like or South Asians, like, you know, it's everybody, you know, Hispanics, Blacks, like we just don't ask for help. And we don't, um, we don't think we need it. And we usually do. Yeah, absolutely. I can't emphasize that enough, too. So thank you for reiterating. And um, that is so important. One of the things that I wanted to also dive into with you is, especially the fact that you have so many identities that you're combining into who you are as Najwa. You're a doctor, you're a business owner, you're an entrepreneur, you're a mom, you're a wife, you're a family member, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so growing up though, like, especially as you went into your entrepreneurship in the fashion space, you know, we, we were always told at least in, in my household, especially in a lot of other friends that I've talked to of like, do your passions on the side, but do the like main, you know, stable corporate or like money-making thing as the core and then anything you like in like you know like home decorating for example my dad was always like yeah just do it on the side during the weekends um and so when you did finally accept like okay i i am a doctor this is going great but i also want to break into this how did you talk to yourself during that so this is such a great point right like if i had just said this to my family like about 20 years ago Mm -hmm. right and I was like hey like I want to be a fashion designer my parents would have been like are you kidding me like get your head straight on and like you know (laughs) where's your money going to come from so exactly like it's really funny because um 
you know, we are told this, like, we're like, okay, if you could have a passion, but you don't need to act on that passion, you need to have a really reliable <laughs> job. And like in the, you know, Asian culture, it's either like doctor, lawyer, or engineer. And that's it. Like, you know, and even lawyers, sometimes they're not really keen on, but doctor engineer, they're like great on. And like, Absolutely. I- <laughs> can I just say for a second, this is where I'll harken back to our ABCD comment. That is the confusing piece. Because in American society, you're like, find your passion, pursue it. And then at home, you're like, the passion's great, but check it. You know? <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Like, it's absolutely ridiculous. So that's such a great question that you ask, you know, like if I had asked my if I had told my parents like 20 years ago, like, yeah, I had a passion to do something other than becoming a doctor. They would have been like, are you kidding me? Like, there's just <laughs> no way that's possible. Right. Like there's like, no, put it to the side, because for them, like, you know, becoming either these three coveted uh, professions, a doctor, engineer or a lawyer is their way out of immigrancy. So they can be like a part of society and they can hold a, um, you know, profession of uh, prestige. And so like for them, like having anything else. And even now, like sometimes like, you know, when I talk to my mom, my mom's like, oh, what is that? And I'm like, mom, that's like a really viable career. Like, what are you talking about? You know? And she's like, no, no, like that girl doesn't know what she's doing. And I'm like, no, she's going to be amazing. She's going to be great. And my mom's like, whatever. It's just something that they, they just felt like in order for them to be recognized, um, you know, they had to have their kids in these things. That being said, when I was younger, I wanted to be an archaeologist and uh, I was really into different cultures. Yeah. Like, and I have, (laughs) yeah, very Indiana Jones. And I had a, um, I have a minor in ethnoanthropology. I was very passionate about it. But my parents were like, what are you going to do digging up like sand? Like, the, you know, our, you know, people in Pakistan do that all the time. They, they don't even get paid for it. So, like, you know, obviously that that didn't work. Oh but <laughs> And fashion was like, that's just like, you can't even talk about fashion and, you know, like in the Pakistani community because they're like, that's like useless. Like, they're like, don't even talk about it. But... For me, like after becoming a physician, having a career as a, you know, physician and a surgeon, you know, I had, I guess, like gotten to the point where my parents respected my decisions at this point. And so they were like, well, you know, she has a profession, she has a degree, she has a job. So I guess if she wants to do this, this is okay. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was really funny because even now, like my parents, like when I'm, you know, with when we launched our uh, the shoe line in 2020 and then COVID hit and my mom was like, you know, you don't have to be so sad like it's okay like you know that it's just you know you still have your your job you're still a doctor like you don't have to worry about your shoes and I was like mom like this is my startup like you know I I put my heart and soul into this like of course I'm worried about it and my mom was like well you always have your you know your office to fall back on and I was like mom I'm still doing my office so it's really funny like um it's really difficult to explain to parents. And so I feel like the question that you had was like, you know, do you need permission? Or if you have passion, should you not, um, should you not follow it? Because your, you know, your family or your parents may not understand it. And I, and I tell people this is that if it's your true passion and you can really see a viable future coming from it, because you're just willing to work that hard to make it come true, then go for it. Yeah. Because, there's nothing else in life that's going to um, give you success except the ability to hustle every day because you love something so much. And um, for me, you know, I love medicine, but I also love fashion. And so it just, for both of these, I will hustle as hard as I need to, and I will create my own luck where I can. And you will do the same because that's what means everything to you. Absolutely. And I I think The piece that I really admire is that it does take a lot of work to reach that stage where you're like, okay, I am looking for no other permission than my own. 
So sometimes, like, for example, in our 20s or when we're younger, I don't mean to pick on the 20s, but, um, you know, that's when our parents might have more of an influence on us and more, therefore, more of a say in our lives. And so if they say, yeah, I don't think so, do it on the side, we might be like, oh, okay, okay, yeah, maybe they're right. And then we won't do it. But as we start to come into our own, individuate and really understand what will make me happy. And I think there's that reality of like, okay shit, I'm getting older, looking back, I I go into this place, I don't mean this in like a gloomy way, but like on my deathbed, will I regret, you know, this and feel like I I should have done it, then do it. So there's that piece. But like, when you grow up, it's hard not to think about like, the way we talk about stories of people who didn't follow that typical path, that stable assimilation path, the way like you even described your mom being like, Oh, I don't get it, whatever, you know, since kind of strange um that's how my parents would talk about it too like oh they're doing that full time like geez like let's see how that goes so you're (laughs) like oh shit maybe I shouldn't be that person because they sound like scary and like rebellious and unpredictable or you know like they don't have their life together so it takes a lot to break from that and break up with that notion and be like okay I can do both and in fact the flow that happens when you get into the thing that you love is just impossible to describe, right? And you're right, that's that means you'll go do it more and probably see more success with it. Oh, 100%. You're so correct, right? And I and I and I'm really happy that you refer to the 20s and it's not because we're bashing on them, but it's the period of where you're like the most uncertain of yourself, of what you can accomplish, of what you can accomplish and like that just comes with age, right? And even though you feel like you know everything, you really don't until you get older and you can look back. Um, you know, I I have to say this like, you know, now being that I'm a parent myself, like I, I, I feel like parents or maybe like our parents because they couldn't communicate as well to us as we can to our children. One of the things is that, you know, when they told us no or they didn't understand our passion, I don't think it's because they didn't understand it, but it was because they were maybe looking for us to show um, them our passion, mm-hmm. right? So like what I mean by that is that, you know, like if I showed my parents, like I really want to become an archaeologist, like I really, really want to and I did everything in my power just like I did to become a doctor, like my parents would have probably been like, okay, like you're, wow, girl, like you're really, really, you know, really passionate about it, I will. But, you know, I feel like parents also know their kids' strengths and weaknesses and um, they, if they see their parent, if they see their child not being able to like have have this idea of what they want to accomplish, or they have this aspiration, but they really don't have the hustle behind it, then parents are like, oh, you know, okay. And I'm not saying this across the board for everybody, but I I have seen that more and more now that the parents are like, you know, they really try to steer you in a positive direction. I feel like with my girlfriends, you know, who have kids who are in high school, they really try to not say no to their kids' passion, but they know like, oh, you know, my kid is just not you know going to do much here. So like, let me help them in what they are good at Mm. like for example like my son he's 11 but if you follow me on instagram you've probably seen like my son has this passion of writing he wants to be an author so this child you know he has written multiple books since he was seven we have never helped him with any of them he was so passionate during COVID um, that he wrote a five-part series oh of this, uh, yeah, like this fantastic magical world. And he found an editor and an illustrator on Upwork. He talked to, um, he self-published in Barnes and Nobles. He did all of this. He's eleven, by the way. All of this, and then he just asked us to help him pay for it because obviously he's, you know, a child. <laughs> and he's eleven. And then when I talked to his illustrator, they're like, "Oh, we had no idea he was eleven because they were just messaging back and forth on." Um, 
Upwork. And I was like, oh my God, like, you know, my child showed me initiative. So now I'm like, okay, you know, I need to hone that passion of his. But if he wasn't like, then I would be like, well, let me help you find your passion because you need to have a career, right? Yeah, my jaw is open like the genie in Aladdin because I'm like, holy shit, um, your kid might fund your business one day. <laughs> like He's like on a roll at 11 years old. He might be the next JK Rowling. So um, kudos to him. I'm so um, impressed to hear. And wow, does that make me feel like what am I doing with my life? But um, I know that wasn't the <laughs> No, objective. but it's so funny. <laughs> yeah, it is really cool. It's so, it's so crazy, right? Like, I mean, who does that? Like, but that's what I'm saying. Like, I think like, it's really crazy because I'm his parent, but I, I don't think he's a genius. Like, I think he's my sweet child who's really passionate about something. But like, yeah, when people hear it, they're like, whoa. And I'm like, no, he's just showing me his passion. And for my mom again, she's like, oh, you know, what is he going to do when he's an author? Like, tell him to either write code so he can become an engineer oh, no. or then become like a... I'm like, no, mom, he wants to be an author. He's going to be an author. Just relax. Yeah, I actually, <laughs> really, I really appreciate that. That's the only thing that kind of lingered for me that I had to let go of is, um, first of all, there comes a point in our adulthood where we start to realize, like, you have to let go of some of those, like, I wish my mom and dad did this, right? So one of the things for me was that I wish they had encouraged some of my side passions so that I could have spent more years and, you know, rule of 10,000 hours, right? I would have spent more time developing that skill. So I think it's awesome when a parent does that. I have also let go of that because I'm like, at this point, whatever happened, happened. It is what it is. Like now I need to take charge of my life. Um, Yes. And so there's that. But the other thing I heard um, that I thought of is, you know, having a this is us moment of like generations. Um, But like thinking of how you described when you were a kid having um, feedback when you were quiet or, you know, didn't really make too much ruckus that it was a good thing. So I wonder how much you internalize that as a compliment, right? Like to be quiet, to go with the flow, et cetera. Um, now that you, you tapped into, you know, now you're looking at your own children and how you want to mother your children. How have you thought about that consciously of like, hey, like, you know, what I say about the way that they're taking up space, how they're not, it really does make a difference to their psyche. How, how do you think about that? So, you know, this is such a oh, my God, this is such a profound piece right right here so like exactly like in my family majority of all of my family members like even my extended are like oh Najwa is just like the best she's so easy she never you know does any hullabaloo like she's just easy to get along with and it's because like you know my whole life I've just been you know just really easygoing and very quiet and not I don't have much to say like even if people are talking around me like I don't really argue with them I let them be but my daughter, my daughter is eight years old, and she is the sassiest little thing I have ever met in my <laughs> life. She is a firecracker. I call my son Sugar, and I call her Fire because it's like Sugar and Fire. You know, they're just like, they're they're the best. Like I love them, and um, and I really wish that she will always stay the way that she is. Mm-hmm. She has a very strong personality. She has a very strong opinion. She knows what she wants. And I don't ever want her to feel like she cannot speak up because I feel like once you lose that or if you never develop that, you spend your whole life looking for it. And I'm still looking. I've gotten better. But, um, you know, her being able to say what she wants in a very, very uh, respectful way, but being able to um, give her opinions without any hesitation is I think a strength that girls, especially the mothers of girls should hone and not try to uh, subdue or, um, you know, change. 
I'm so glad that these younger generation of girls are starting to own that so much earlier in their lives, because the more I, again, going back to 20s, one of the big lessons I had was in order to be non-disruptive and harmonious, which sometimes, you know, again, we're, whether we're South Asian or not, you internalize these messages of like being really, um, you know, accommodating, hospitable, very harmonious um, as a woman in a dynamic. And so in doing that, like I wasn't actually sometimes like really even doing my job, you know, like if I talked about my career. So more and more, yes. I got my feedback mm-hmm. from like managers and mentors being like, have an opinion. Like if you come into the room and even if you're wrong, like it's not like they personally attacked you like you suck, Lahari. It's like literally like your opinion just might be the recommendation, like might have a different perspective. And you know, you can just be like, oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. It doesn't have to mean like you yes. have to crumble from that. So that's something that I really like started to um, understand. And then like, wow, like it felt so sexy after that to be like walking into a room and then be like, I have an opinion. I have a point of view. You can disagree if you want. Oh, I learned something from it Um, or it was the right thing. And that feels really good, too. So um, that is something that I I would love, like when I become a mother, just like thinking about how can I do that? And I, I just really, really appreciate hearing you as a mother already thinking about that. Yes, thank you. I think that that's really important, right? Like we need to be able to have opinions. We need to be able to speak our opinions. We need to be able to think about our opinions. And then we need to be able to reflect those. And so I'm, you know, I think that it's, this is, no child comes with a handbook of how to raise mm-hmm. them. But I do believe that, you know, every every single child in is innately, you know, structured to be able to ask questions because they're just curious beings. And if we can, you know, really foster that and, you know, grow that and nurture that, then those children are going to become adults who have a really clear, sound minds that can think for themselves and can formulate opinions for themselves. And that's what we want, right? That goes back to our whole, like our identity, like, you know, who, what were you accustomed to? Like, is your identity confused? No, you're not. You know who you are. Yes. You can't fall for society telling you you're confused because you're like, confused isn't an identity. It's a feeling. (laughs) Yeah. Um, On the flip side, too, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, when I talk to friends of mine who are mothers, they mentioned how, you know, there's this interesting dynamic of, for example, before the pandemic, there's this guilt that you feel of in order to be achieving, you know, I might have to spend less time with my children. And then, um, you know, because I'm at my work or, you know, doing the things that I'm doing to like make sure that we are paying the bills. And then on the flip side with the pandemic, a lot of them ended up working from home. Um, Some of them did have to go in, but then there's this feeling of like, Now I have more time with my kids, but now I feel guilty because I can't be their teacher and their uh, mother, you know, caretaker. And then I'm also doing my job. I'm not paying attention to my job as much. And it's, um, you know, the statistics showed that too. Women suffered a lot from the pandemic with career wise. And so um, I'm curious, like, especially even considering or not considering the pandemic, how, how do you balance guilt as like a person who is both a entrepreneur doctor has all of this going on and is balancing, you know, your identity with your family. Wow. So, you know, this is a really loaded question because the the issue, you know, the issue is, is that we're always told that there has to be a work life balance, right? Mm-hmm. And um, there really isn't one. Yeah. So, what what I what I usually the way that I usually think about it is work life integration. How am I going to integrate? my life and my work, um, you know, simultaneously so that I can achieve 
um, successes in both, right? Because you don't want to be unsuccessful in your uh, work, yeah. but you also don't want to be unsuccessful in your um, life where it comes to your marriage or to your children. So when I had to think about this, I was like, okay, all right, I have two young kids. Uh, what am I going to do? So one of the first things that I did is, is that I, and I mentioned this before, is that I always ask for help. This is like the one thing that I've learned. Like it takes a whole village to raise a child. So like, if you don't ask for help, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that I told myself is, is that I need either a nanny or somebody who's going to be a co, uh, you know, uh, helping me and like not co-parenting per se but like co-loving the child right. right like anywhere that they can get love like I want them to be able to have that love and so that I can do my work without stressing that my child is not getting the appropriate amount of love that they need so we were blessed that our nanny that we got, we had her for um, nine years and she was like a godsend and she allowed me to work my job um, with ease. And, you know, if and for some people that, you know, if they can't find a nanny, then that other person is like their family member, like their mother-in-law, their father-in-law, their their mother, their father, whoever it is. Right. So like. I would say, like, you need help, ask for help. Like, this is the way that life works. We can't do it all. Secondarily, you know, um, other than that, like, I try to, when I'm at work, I try to focus on my work because I know that my kids are safe and they are loved for. So if they're safe and they're loved for, then I can disengage with them and I can just focus on my um, work tasks that I have to complete. And I try to do as much as I can the day and the time that I am. But after I'm done there, I'm not going to sit and take it home. Sometimes I have to, but majority of the time, that's my fault. And then I tell myself, like, if you had just gotten it done, then you wouldn't have had to suffer this, right? So it's like putting accountability on yourself to getting the things that you needed to get done at that time so that you can be efficient, right? It's all about efficiencies. Now, it's usually, you know, like, I feel like the, the type of woman that I am in order to achieve all of these things, you have to have like a certain type of OCD mm -hmm. or a type A personality, right? Like you have to just have that because it's not, you're not going to be able to get all of this done anyways, if you don't have that. So I'm very efficient, like, you know, I have my kids wake up at this time. I know that they're going to be dressed. We leave the house. We have breakfast. Like everything is very regimented, but that doesn't mean that my life is regimented. Like, you know, I am very relaxed. Like if something doesn't happen the way that it needs to, I'm okay with it. It's not the end of the world. And that actually is the hardest thing for OCD um, personalities or type A personalities to accept. So that's the one thing that I had to change. I was like, okay, I have all of these efficiencies in plain, but you know what? If something doesn't go the way it's supposed to, don't shit a brick because of it. Yeah. Just relax. Like, it's going to be okay. Like, just don't go crazy. And that in itself, the learning to be okay and just take it easy. I don't know if that came with motherhood or if that came with just, like, being a, being you know, somebody who needed to balance so much. Like if my, you know, my dishes are not all on the dishwasher, like I couldn't sleep before, but now I'll be like, okay, you know, I'll do them in the morning. Like, it's not the end of the world. Like I try to tell myself, like, it's going to be okay. As long as everybody's safe and happy, then I can take a breather. And so that's, you know, those are really, really important things. You have to integrate your work and your uh, life together, but you can't like balance everything. This is not possible. So you do the best that you can. If you're tired, take order takeout like it's okay like it's not a big deal absolutely but yeah so th that's those are my two cents like honestly like you really have to figure out what's going to work for you and your family and if it's not working then think of like a solution where it's like how are you not how how can you give this to somebody else to manage so that it can take some burden off of you absolutely i so I have two thoughts. One is me as not a mother and me wondering if when I'm a mother, I'll feel this way. So you can tell me like, skirt, Lahari, you don't know what you're talking about if that's the case. <laughs> but one is 
not as a mother. I, I feel like sometimes I have to get comfortable with like what you described of if you just are having that type of moment where you're like, I'm not getting around to it. It's okay. You know, sometimes you have your five to do's right on your list and you might just be not feeling well or up to it or something happened that day where you learned of something. We're not robots. So let's say you're having a day where you're like, I'm just exhausted. I just don't even think I'm going to get around to one of the five. Then what's the harm, right? Like, so like that piece, like is something I'm like trying to like get comfortable with, but I think we continue to talk ourselves into like, no, but you have to show, you have to show. The other piece is I wonder as um as a mother, and this is where I was like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there um has to be that moment where you're like, there's so many things that you're doing. And when imposter syndrome kicks in negatively, that maybe if you don't do that one thing, even the 10 things that you did, if the 11th thing you didn't do, do you ever feel like it's like then, you know, sometimes you fall into that trap of like you forget about everything else and you're like, I didn't do this one thing. Therefore, I feel like I I can't do it all. So I think that that has to go with your priority list, right? Mm -hmm. So like you get to prioritize number 11 to number one if that is what is going to make or break your day. So you see, like for me, like I, I, everything has to have a priority. And if number 11 is the same priority as number one, then I only have number one priorities and that's never going to end. So I really, really have to make sure that I know what needs to get done. So like, I'll give you an example. So like, you know, having kids or no kids. I have a full-time job as a physician and a owner of a medical group that I have to get done on a daily basis. But then I also have Emar, which is my startup company. And then I also have my kids whose homework needs to be completed the next, before the next day. Right. So like if, if, if I put all of those on my number one criterion, which they all are, then I'm not going to be able to get any of them done because I'm just constantly thinking, right? But if for my job, like my office, I'm like, okay, I had like 60 charts today and I got done with 56 of them and four are left. Like I'm going to do them when I go home at night, but I can't because like I have to like maybe send out a mass like a marketing email for Emar that night more because like Raya has a test the next day that I had to get her ready for. And so like what takes precedence then? So like my, my, um, uh, my list changes. So like, okay, then Raya's test becomes like the most important thing. Cause I have to get that done. Cause she's dependent on me for that help. And then, you know, that email marketing thing, like, unless I have a hard deadline, which again, I get to place those hard deadlines. But if that hard deadline is something that I've placed, like either I have to move it to the next morning and then I have to move my um, dictations to the next morning. You have to be flexible in your life because if you're not, then you will get burned out, right? Like, I mean, we have so many tasks to get done, children or no children. There's just the life. That's just the way we are. Mm -hmm. We're overworked and we're overexhausted and the task list never finishes. But if you, um, you know, keep on taking, you know, some Uh, some fluid out of your glass, but then adding more to it, then you're never going to get to the bottom of that cup. So you really need to focus on what's the most important thing and how can I get it done? And that changes throughout the day, right? Like something may happen and change. One of the things that I never try to change though is my self-care, which is my exercise. I don't care if that's a 20 minute hop on on a Peloton, a 15 minute strength training on the Peloton, or if it's just like a, you know, 15 or 20 minute walk that I'm doing with my husband outside. Like my mental health requires me to disassociate from everything and make my body sweat. So if I, whatever that requires in that day, like I have to get that done. And that is my number one priority usually because like I will do that regardless of everything else because that resets me. So, you know, you need to see what works for your life and what gets you going. Absolutely. I like that. And that's a really productive behavior. Um, 
I know, like, especially during the pandemic, sometimes that, like, escape was wine for me. And I was like, this is not really healthy, though. So, like, you have to find that <laughs> healthy thing, too. You can't cheat. Um, but I like what you said in terms of, pri- like, you really drilled down that concept of prioritization because that is something I think that comes in the way, like, especially going back to your work-life integration piece. That, like, I think it was, like, 10, 15 years ago, work-life balance came out as a concept in corporate and they like loved it. And I remember watching a talk with Indra Nui, who is the CEO of PepsiCo, and she was like, that doesn't exist. And she was one of the first like revolutionary people who said that. And I think especially as in her ability to empathize with the as a woman, she is like, it doesn't exist, especially for women. And so I liked that she called that out because at first I was like, wait, then what do we have? But she pointed out what you basically described. And because my upbringing in my career is more corporate, like I think one of the big lessons I learned was um, around strategic thinking versus tactical thinking. So like tactics are great. Those are the things that take up your to-do list. But if you go with what is it strategically solving for, it's usually two or three things in your life. Um, So if you translate that from work to personal, I've honestly just been developing business plans for myself because I'm like, that helps me do a better sense of like, what am I actually solving for with this action? Or is it just like a task I need to get done, but it's not actually going to move any kind of progress around what I actually need to be doing today and like what's valuable today. Exactly. I mean, you know, you just hit on such a critical point, right? Like what is busy work and what is actually productive work? And like sometimes we don't know the difference. We have no idea. We're like, oh, I thought everything was, you know, like productive. And that is not true. Like some work is just busy work and you don't need to do it right now. Like you have other things that need to happen. So like you're exactly correct. And I love that you said that because that is so critical of being able to actually be mindful of this, right? So last but not least, Najwa, we've covered so much connecting back to our identities and especially rooted back to that thesis we had about the imposter syndrome. Given all that, how do you personally feel like your advice would be to free oneself from American pressures of assimilation and South Asian stigma, norms and expectations? So, you know, this is a really great question. And for different people, it may be different. Um, But for me personally, and I think that this is what I try to root in my children and also like my friends and, um, you know, children that I'm around is that, look, like your identity is who you make it. So a part of you is that South um, Asian culture that you're bringing to the table that nobody else has except you because you also have this part of this American culture that you've brought together And you've made it your own, you know, what you pick, what you choose. And when you assimilate it all together, makes it a unique personality type, just like a fingerprint. And that is yours. And when you know that, and when you know that this is who you are and your identity is so strong with that, then you don't have to worry about, you know, anybody else because you know who you are. I think, you know, um, it was a song and I think Katy Perry said it. If you don't stand for anything, you fall for everything, right? So like if you stand for who you are, you will not fall for anything anything else. And I think that that's critical. And that's what it is to me. Like I try to push this down my children all the time that this is who you who you are is just perfect. Yeah, I love that. And I love the pop culture reference too. So it's a really beautiful way to leave that and tie this with a book. Uh, as custom would love to end with a chip chip round, which used to be a rapid fire, but 
Honestly, I just get too curious about the answer. So if I ask follow up, let's just say it's a fun fire round. Um, So are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, what is your dream fashion collaboration that you would like to do with your brand? Oh my God, I would love to do it with, okay, so if it was um, Asian, I would love to do it with Sabiasachi. Yes. That couture house is to die for. Oh my goodness sake. So like he has brought, I I feel like he is like the um, Coco Chanel of India. Like, you know, you know, like just this fashion icon, like who changes the way we think of fashion, completely brings it to the forefront. Just amazing. I mean, I know Coco Chanel was a woman and he's a man, but like just completely just blows it out of the water. And I think his um, designs, his vision, uh, what he does is incredible. And I would love to do, it's impeccable. Like I would just love to do a um, collaboration with him. Yep. I love that. Uh, What is your favorite item to break a Ramadan fast with? Oh my God, something fried like a pakora or a samosa. Yum. <laughs> and so well deserved, honestly. So. Yes. The staple of all Asian foods is the fried fritter, yes. the pakora. Put a potato yes. in dough, fry it, it's done. Yeah, that, uh, delicious. I know, honestly, we would solve world peace if we just realized yes. that we could unite over fried dough and potatoes. <laughs> I know, it's so delicious. And Ramadan is the only time I give myself the ability to actually eat this and the rest of the year year, I will not touch it so yeah bring them on I'm ready for the pakoras tonight I am so impressed (laughs) Uh, what is your self-care fantasy I know you mentioned walking but like fantasy Oh, okay. So, uh, so this is really funny. So like, I believe you should do self-care every day. So it shouldn't be a fantasy, but you know, my self-care is taking the 20 to 30 minutes to do, uh, you know, some type of sweat, uh, activity, but my fantasy, like if I had to add that to my self-care reg- regiment would be to do it on a beach. And like, I don't live on a beach. I live in San Francisco, but we don't live on the mm-hmm. beach. And so my fantasy is for my husband to one day purchase me a house, like right on the ocean in like either, you know, uh, Santa Monica or like Huntington Beach and I could buy it myself but I'd rather have him buy it for me yeah gift it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your presence That's is a right. gift oh, there you yes. go <laughs> um, would you rather have to speak in rhyme for the rest of your life or have to speak in riddles for the rest of your life Oh my gosh, for rhymes for sure. Because I used to think that I was going to be a Bollywood um, singer when you know when I was younger. So wow. it would be rhymes for sure. And riddles, I just can't do them. They just don't. I never get the right answer. Me too. They're very confusing. Um, so <laughs> very interesting background of dreams and aspirations. Archaeologist yeah. and Bollywood singer. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I could do this. Let them unkish yeah. all the way, and it did not work. <laughs> never too late. <laughs> if you had the chance to do lockdown in any museum in the world. Which one would it be? So I had a hard time deciding between this one, but I decided that I would have had to do it in the Louvre. And the reason why is, is that I love, love the Louvre anyways. But um, I have always had this fascination with the Mona Lisa. I know everybody in the world does, and it's kind of like cliche to say it, but I've actually been really, really fascinated with it, you know? And so if I had uh, one opportunity to do a lockdown, I would probably do it in the Louvre and then try to find like a, you know, tunnel system underneath and hang out in France, which is like my favorite city, even though I'm not agreeable to their laws that they are doing right now. But yeah, that's what I would have liked to do. Yeah, no, I appreciate you calling that out. Uh, Najwa, thank you so much. This was such an insightful conversation and I learned a tremendous amount and I really hope and think that a lot of other women will appreciate this too. So 
Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge and experiences. Thank you so much for having me. This was the funnest podcast I've done in a really, really long time. So thanks for having me. Ooh, over here. I'll take it as a compliment.